Welcome to Ask the Chief Information Officer on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Now your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Dorothy Aronson, the National Science Foundation's Chief Information Officer. Dorothy, welcome to the program. Thank you, Jason. So I can't believe this. It's been almost 10 years since I had the NSF CIO on. So we have so much to catch up. But first, I'm going to ask a little bit about yourself because you've been in this role now for about nine months. Before, you've been with NSF for, for quite a while. You were the, the director of the Division of IT Systems, Information Systems, since 2011. Talk a little bit about that shift in your role. Talk about the differences and how you ended up here in the CIO's office. This transition has been extremely difficult for me. I am an IT person, and I grew up in the IT industry. And so my job as the division director in the Division of Information Systems was to lead a group of people like myself, IT people. And... I got them to gather around a common vision, and I mastered that. So now as the chief information officer, I've got to lead all kinds of people. I've been learning, I'm continuing to learn the vocabulary that the CIOs use. I do a lot of work describing complex IT situations for non-IT people, and I'm getting a lot of experience working in formal situations that are completely new for me. That's fascinating. Talk just a little bit more about your background. You said you're an IT person, uh, engineer, slash coder, slash what? I was a software developer. I grew into a systems architect. Uh, that was while I was working as a contractor. Uh, um, and I worked for as a contractor for the federal government for about nine years doing those things. Mostly what I did was I solved messy problems. So where there were projects that were way over budget, way beyond time frame, customers are greatly dissatisfied. I would find that I was assigned to lead those kinds of things. And so I have a lot of experience with conflict, uh, pulling things up from below sea level. <laughs> uh, and so that's really my technology history. So it sounds like you're the perfect candidate for a CIO's role, messy projects, pulling things up. The biggest challenge is probably, as you said, explaining IT to non-IT people. Has that been the, the learning curve? I mean, the CIO vocabulary, we can talk all day about that, but, but kind of understanding that you're not dealing with IT folks all the time anymore? Yes, but it's more convincing non-IT people. So where I think that I've always been having to make a translation, it used to be the other way. It used to be that I was translating for technology people, things that were non-technology prop, that were non-technology problems. And by that I mean if a person had a business problem, I would interpret the business problem and turn it into something that the technology people could understand. Going in the opposite direction is harder. So that's been a challenge, but it's mostly the constraints around my approach to doing things, the formal nature of inter of interacting with people that's more difficult for me. IT people are free and easy, they're craftspeople. And uh, and you don't always find that in the the upper echelons. Definitely the CFOs, the, the acquisition folks, the HR folks, they all bring their own kind of culture. And you have to understand, okay, well, I'm used to the IT culture. How do I mesh with that other culture? And then at the same time, show them why this is important. You'd think after 
an OPM breach, you think after a JP Morgan Chase, a Target breach, this all should be easy. But but unfortunately, it's it's I hear from other CIOs, it's not always easy. So how'd you end up at NSF or how'd you end up in the government world versus just staying as a contractor? So I moved to this area for personal reasons. I'm from Philadelphia and I had been in Philadelphia in banking. And I came here and I worked as a contractor for the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency and I was there for about uh, eight years as a contractor. I liked working for the government and supporting the government, but I didn't like the having multiple bosses, which is common in the consulting range. So I was offered an opportunity to come into DARPA as a federal employee. I was there for uh, over 10 years. And when I had tried all the different things that were at DARPA, and I evolved into a position that was only partly IT, and I was not happy doing that. Um, and I got an opportunity to come over here and work for National Science Foundation on a detail. And when I came here, it was the first time I had ever worked for a woman in, uh, in 25 years. I had never worked for a woman, and so it was a big surprise to me. That created a whole new vision of what was possible for me because I'd never thought of myself as a, a manager or a leader. And so I've really loved the NSF experience. I've been here for over 10 years now. Excellent. And I, I guess uh, seeing yourself as the CIO as well is probably not a job looking back on over your career. Did you ever say to yourself, oh, I'll be a CIO one day? Or, or, or you said, I'm going to be that the best software developer or best systems engineer I, architect I can be? I tend not to have specific objectives. I more go with the flow of how things are uh, pulling me. Uh, I certainly, when I came into the business, there was no such thing as a CIO. So that has been a new thing over the past, I don't know, 15 years maybe. I never wanted that job, this job. Uh, <laughs> I fell into it by default. Uh, the previous CIO here passed away suddenly. And I loved her and I miss her every day. And because I was the division director and her deputy, I was acting CIO in her stead. And eventually I got used to the idea of, of moving in this direction. Uh, I know it was sad news in the federal community when she passed away. I know that's something that we have, uh, knew her very well over the years. When you got moved into the role and you talk about the learning curve has been, has been maybe a little steeper than maybe you have thought, the vocabulary is one thing, understanding, but the tech side of the CIO's role. So a lot of people, a lot of CIOs are strategic and a lot of CIOs are operational. Right now, I imagine you're leaning towards the operational side and maybe you want to move toward the strategic side. Well, my nature is to understand the operations. And when I was first talking to the director about taking this role on, she was very concerned that I would stay with the operations because I do love that. But I had to more or less promise to commit to dropping that, and I have. In fact, when I realized that I could, I was ecstatic. Moving away from having to worry every day about every uh, secure, potential security breach or every server that might crash, that was weighing on me in a way I didn't really understand. So I felt actually liberated when I left operations and started going back and being able to freely think and invent potential future for the agency. That's in some ways a relief and, and really freeing up because it frees up your mind and your, your body, if you will, to do other things. I think that a lot of CIOs I've, I've heard who came from the operational side mm -hmm. have a very similar experience. Let's talk about your office a little bit. Since it's been so long since I got the chance to talk and sit down with the National Science Foundation CIO, remind me how big your office is, how many federal employees, how many contractors, IT budget for 2018. Give me some basics. The CIO office is just me. I get most of my support from the division that I just left, the Division of Information Systems, and they had 60 federal employees. 
over 300 uh, contract support staff, a budget of about $112 million for FY18. Do you support mostly people here in the Alexandria, Virginia Bureau region or National Capital region more broadly, or do you have people across the country? We're going to talk about the research and the academics and, and other kind of partners, but, but generally for NSF. In the CIO community, NSF is easy. It's a single location in Alexandria, and so our entire workforce is either in this building or working remotely or on travel, but basically they're headquartered here. The customers are everywhere across the nation and, and, and abroad. And that obviously creates more challenges for you as the CIO and you, the staff you work with, and the fact that not everyone's in one place. you got to worry about not just the cyber piece, but the mobility piece, and, and that's why we'll talk about all of that in a second. But first, let's take a quick break, and we come back where we can get into some of your priorities and some of the things you're working on. My guest is Dorothy Aronson, the National Science Foundation's Chief Information Officer. I'm your host, Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Federal News Radio's longest-running program sheds light on the complex world of an agency CIO. FederalNewsRadio.com. Search Ask the CIO. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on FederalNewsRadio.com and 1500 AM. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest today is Dorothy Aronson, the National Science Foundation's Chief Information Officer. Dorothy, before break, we got to know you a little bit. As I mentioned at the beginning of the program, it's been about 10 years since I had the NSF CIO on the show, so there's a ton to catch up on. And I'm just going to jump right in. I'm going to start with the one thing that every CIO seems to talk about, and that's cloud computing. Uh, the cloud is everywhere. So let's just talk about the NSF's uh, move into the cloud. NSF has been using Microsoft Office 365 and related products for many years now. The thing that we're embarking on now is putting together a cloud workspace specifically to host data analytics tools so that people who are right now doing that work distributed throughout the agency and various desktop tools will be able to sh leverage the benefit of a, con of a central uh, location for that. We've been working for some time to build up an enterprise data warehouse. So we've accumulated a large amount of NSF information in a central location. And when we get the cloud workspace in place, we're going to lift that data up to the cloud. In addition, in that workspace, people will be able to bring together their own local data stores uh, and mash that data with the central data or with each other's local data source to come up with interesting data analytics. So there's a lot to unpack there. Let me, let me start with the cloud workspace. So currently, and, and help me understand this, if I'm a researcher, if I'm someone who works for NSF, I may have a set of tools on my desktop or a shared tool for my office, but another researcher down the street, around the corner, may not know that I have those tools. So what you're doing is almost standardizing or at least making it easier to share the different tools, because NSF pays for one tool, they've paid for all the tools. Exactly. So what's happening now is that if you're making a dashboard or a query off of our central enterprise <coughs> warehouse, you are holding that locally. And uh, you might have done some ingenious work to create something that many people could benefit from. The notion of the shared workspace is that that work would come together. Also, many of our people are working to improve upon tools, so they're not only using the central tools that we're providing here in the, in the Dis Division of Information Systems, but they might have come across some uh, more 
advanced data analytic components, and they can also now get those from the central location if they find one other people can use them. The other piece of this, and I know it's probably separate, but but kind of a, an, an added benefit is you as the CIO can then start addressing that shadow IT challenge where people be like, well, I just want that, so I'll go buy it with my credit card, the, the government credit card, or buy it through a procurement that maybe you hadn't seen. Uh, does, does that play in a, a side benefit role? Well, it's interesting. First off, I think it's important to recognize that every one of us, there's a continuum of what an IT person used to be. So when people talk about shadow IT, I feel a little like it's unfair because everybody uses IT all the time now. So who can judge when IT should be centralized and when it would be something that an app on your iPhone that you've created yourself or whatever? Those things are, it's not a clear delineation for me. So we encourage people to improve the business process to the greatest extent that they want to, given the constraints of the central systems. But it would allow us to take those local entrepreneurs and centralize their work. So it's true that some people would call that shadow IT. There isn't money being spent on this, to, or there isn't much money. There might be some, but it's not a large amount of money. What, what, the, what they're really providing is they're creating maybe macros with Microsoft Office tools. They're doing things that are end user constructions that result in technology innovations. So it's more than just worried about the, the, as you said, in the shadows, but really bringing out IT that these really smart people, the researchers, the academics have done, and, and, and sharing it among a lot of other people. And by the way, when you said macros, I was really hoping you weren't going to say WordPerfect 5.0 because <laughs> that was the best. So a little, little tag back to our younger years of, of, of IT. The other piece of this is the enterprise data warehouse. Talk a little bit about that. That's currently on-prem, but you're looking at the cloud? Exactly. We have an Oracle repository right now, and we're using tools called OBIE, and that has been a great, we started that years ago, uh, maybe four years ago, and it's been recently blossoming, and we were lucky that we got a little bit ahead of that because the people are now, the focus on data-driven decision-making, so using the data to make important business decisions is happening now, and we luckily have centralized our repository and made the data accessible to people who are on the brink of wanting to use it. When you talk about data-driven decision-making, it, it's great for researchers and academics, but it's also great for the operational side. Are you helping the CFO types, the acquisition types, use that data as well, or is that maybe further down the road once this data lake gets stood up? I think that the CFO community, well, the CFO here at NSF has always had access to very good tools for the financial data in particular. The enterprise data warehouse marries that financial information up with proposal information that comes in PDF documents. And recently we've been wor working to make those PDF documents searchable. So we're expanding that. The, the procurement community that you described here is very small, and they have a local repository. So this is mostly used for the people who are making the grants. And I would definitely want to talk about the grant side, but the PDFs and searchable, that's very interesting. That's uh, considered what maybe we'll call it, you know, unstructured data. Right. Uh, so how do you take that unstructured data and make it structured? What are you guys doing around that? Is that a big data tool you're adding, or is that a, a different type of tool, or maybe you're not quite there yet? Well, what we're trying to do is not structure the data, although there's some of that going on. Mostly what we're trying to do is put data analytics tools on top of the 
unstructured data that allow them to do interesting reports or create images from that data. And is that something that's happening, or is that something that's kind of further down the path for the PDF side? We're just now cleaning up the PDFs. So we've discovered this year a way of making them very uh, searchable, easy to search. And so we have some people in the agency who are more or less pioneers in this area who are currently able to create beautiful representations of that data in picture formats and various graphical formats. What's interesting, I think, about working at a science agency like NSF, I've heard the very similar things from NASA, I've heard similar things from NIST as an example, is that you may be the CIO, but everyone has some very deep IT skills. So when they can bring that to bear, and, and maybe somebody here came up with this, hey, I could do this for, I could write this app or write this mm-hmm. program, and then it can be used broadly. I think that's where the whole shareable cloud comes into play and really makes a big difference. Is that part of your goal as well, is to kind of bring all that knowledge together? Yeah, I absolutely feel like we need to leverage every innovation we can find to help us move forward. And it's exciting. It's exciting for them. They're, they're as I said, like if they were IT people to begin with, they're also crafting inventions. And you really can't stop that kind of creative impulse. So we should definitely benefit from it. I love that part. You mentioned uh, Office 365. Now, let's talk more broadly. You talked about data, data warehouse, data analytics. What are you guys doing as well around Office 365? Is that already in the cloud? Do you have email in the cloud, all your productivity tools, all your office tools in the cloud? Yes. So we have the whole Office 365 suite, the email, the Office products, OneDrive for storing our data, our files. SharePoint is also, we have some SharePoint in the cloud and we're moving the rest this year. When this workspace becomes available, the SharePoint infrastructure will also be moving to that same workspace. How does the cloud play into some of the other areas, the mission side? Are you starting to talk about putting certain, helping work with the mission side to put their stuff in the cloud, or at least making the cloud available for them to put it there? Yes. Uh, So the part that we were describing before, the workspace is for primarily for data analytics researchers. The mission applications are also beginning to store their data uh, in the cloud. So proposals will ultimately be stored in the cloud when they're submitted. That effort is very exciting, but that will be happening gradually over a long period of time. Are you doing anything to put those pieces in place now from the CIO's perspective? Are there contracts or you're borrowing someone else's contract? I know, for instance, the interior department, as an example, they put together a cloud contract that other people can buy from as well. Are you guys looking at in, in that, are you going down that path at all to put anything together yet? for the researchers and other parts of the NSF? The EIS contract that is being uh, launched by General Services Administration is going to be a great help to us in migrating all of our thing, many, I shouldn't say all, many of our uh, functions to the cloud. And, But we're not really thinking more broadly than that that I know of at this time. All right, very interesting. I know EIS is a big contract. A lot, of, a lot of people are looking at it. Let's talk, you know, beyond just cloud, beyond uh, uh, we talked a little bit about data. Talk a little bit about, more about maybe some of your priorities that you're looking at over the next, you know, six or nine months. The most exciting thing that we are doing at the moment is in April we're going to launch, begin a soft launch of a new proposal submission tool, and we're thrilled by that. In, in fact, this month, in February, we are going to be previewing that tool. So customers are going to begin to be able to try that out and give us some feedback on that. 
so that we can incorporate that into the April release. That's a, a fascinating thing. So right now, proposals are done how and how will this change? So the entire proposal process has been automated for the National Science Foundation for a long time. The tool that most people are familiar with is called Fastlane. And the Fastlane is on a modern infrastructure, but the look and feel of the application has not changed significantly since its initial release. Uh, and so in recent years, we've supplemented some of the Fastlane components with newer pieces in a website we call research.gov or argov. This is going, the new proposal submission is going to gradually replace the Fastlane, the look and feel of Fastlane, with a new components that are going to be attached to research.gov infrastructure. And they do more to, uh, as you were talking before about maybe separating some of the data that was into fields rather than into a free-form document, this will do a little bit of that. It will also improve what we call compliance checking so that people will not have to submit proposals and then have them sent back for various reasons. So it's going to be making sure that the submissions are more accurate, and it's going to be making it easier for people to submit proposals to NSF. All right, that's all very good news. I know Fastlane quite well. I've written about that several times over the years. Dorothy, let's take a quick break. When we come back, we can jump more into maybe some of your other priorities. My guest is Dorothy Aronson, the National Science Foundation's Chief Information Officer. I'm your host, Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest is Dorothy Aronson, the National Science Foundation's Chief Information Officer. Dorothy, before break, we talked about some of your priorities. We talked about cloud a lot, big data, data analytics. Let's talk about some other things you're working on. What else is on your priority list? So as the CIO, I'm breaking my work basically into three categories. I'm working to, do, to engage the broader IT workforce. So the Division of Information Systems is only one part of the IT workforce here at NSF. And I want to gather us all together uh, in order to s advance modernization and adoption of new tools. I want to improve our governance, continue to improve our governance. So several years ago, we began taking governance here very seriously with executive groups. We've also been as agile development has become important component of our operational procedures. We've, we've been fortunately evolving agile development along with governance at the same time. The reason that's important is because for customer-centric work, we need customers. And the governance processes have brought together groups of people for us, have helped us bring together groups of people that are engaged in modernizing our systems. So I want to continue to improve that, that work. One of the things that's very important in governance right now is to make it understood by a broader number of people. So, and, and make it easy for the governors who are actually making the budgetary decisions to understand the technology that they're talking about. So again, that goes back to this question of how do you excite non-technology people and make them feel confident about making an investment of $100 million in, in IT. So there's the importance of simplifying governance. And then the third area is stimulating innovation. So recently this has become a critical part of the IT 
vocabulary in that, as you know, IT has been evolving at a faster and faster rate so that it's become so integral to every part of our lives that we don't think about it. And yet our business processes here within the federal government have not been evolving as quickly as the commercial industries. So what we want to do is, so I'm beginning to spend a lot of time looking at emerging technologies. Right now we're about at marketplace here at the National Science Foundation, so we're in a great place. But we need to always be looking a little bit further down the runway than we had been in the past. And so in that regard, I've been working with the CIO Council's Innovation Committee that's headed by the SBA's CIO. Her name is Maria Rote. And we are talking a lot about uh, implementation of perhaps some artificial intelligence components and getting that going. There's a lot to unpack there. Let me start with the workforce. When you talk about engaging the broader IT workforce, I remember part of our conversation, there's about 60-some-odd feds, about 300 contractors. So it's a fairly big workforce. But you're even talking about a, bigger than that. You're talking to spread out to, to the research world, to the, to the mission side. What do you want, if you will, from them, or how do you want to be able to engage with them more? Is it relates back to the innovation and the governance, too? Yes, it's, it's about innovation. It's about making sure that we're all focused on the same modernization initiatives. So everybody comes to work in the morning and can choose among hundreds of different tasks to perform. And... I would like them to choose, the IT people at least, to choose tasks that add together to something exciting. So if everyone is choosing something different, everyone, we move forward very slowly in many areas, but if we all focus on single objectives together, then again, we get there faster. Uh, also, it's important that the, the people that are in the program office, they do not have time to learn whatever business process we have here. The people in NSF come, some of them stay for a couple years and then they leave. And so they don't want to spend their time here focusing on the business systems or how business is done here. But the IT specialists that are here do have more longevity. So it's I feel like it's their job to reach out to the program op. Uh, officers and make sure that they're up to speed on the tools that we're using and where we're going. So that's a key part. It's it's not only to integrate the IT people, but ensure engagement, adoption of the tools that are constantly modernizing throughout the agency. One thing that occurs to me as you're kind of going through that is an IT strategic plan or some sort of strategy. It doesn't have to be a strategic plan, but some sort of strategy that says, here's the path I want us to walk down. Now, we don't all have to walk down this one path, but there could be two or three or four paths that we all should head toward. Is that is that in the offing? Oh, absolutely. We, we've been working for many years. We've had an as-is and a to-be architecture, for example. We also have roadmaps for each business system and for all the business systems together. So we can, you can drill down and look at one component or you can see how that affects the others, uh, the others that are also modernizing. Remember, everything is moving forward. It's a river. You're in the middle of a river of things that are constantly changing. And so if you don't, if you're not aware of the other parts that are changing, you could be modernizing in a direction that's a dead end. So, and we don't want that. So that's why all this bringing people together is so important. And that leads us down the path of the governance discussion. Now, I know 
back in 2012, you guys had done some effort and some work around IT governance and, and improving it. Talk a little bit about what you've seen since. I know it's been five or six years, but you talk about the work groups, you talk about people getting together to really communicate. And then I want to go into Agile DevOps because, as you said, that plays right into it. So the governance started out with what was mandatory. So we had executives working together at multiple levels in the agency to figure out, uh, to approve a budget. What has come, and that was the original scope of governance, uh, we also had working groups at very low levels that had no connection to governance. And so what has happened in the past several years is the two levels are grown together and now connected. Again, this makes it very easy to align with the strategic plan of the agency, the strategic direction of the IT, and all the people in these various work groups see the same artifacts as their guiding principles and their guiding artifacts. And that's so important. As you said, you don't want people to come in and, and choose or work on something that maybe is outside the lane, that they're swimming in their own lane, so to speak, because that makes the changes, that modernization approaches happen much more slowly. So talk a little bit about maybe a benefit or two that you've seen, maybe a program or a project or something that comes to mind that you said, oh, because we had this closer connection, that went better or more quickly, or, or is there anything that comes to mind? Sure. The, we were talking earlier about the modernization of the Fastlane system. The project, the group of people that are creating the specifications, the describing what that will look like, it's huge. And it's from every branch of the organization. And when that group started, many of these people were doing this thing that you called, they weren't really doing sh shadow IT, but they all were frustrated and creating solutions to various IT problems on their own. So you put all those people together into a room and you say, let's make this better. Let's make this thing better. The result of that was really implemented a couple of years ago, which is a core database that checks for compliance for various proposal concerns. So let's take a simple one. You know, proposals have to be in, uh, when they have a deadline, they have a 5 o'clock deadline. So that deadline used to be interpreted by the recipient of the proposal. And what, that was a frustration for people. You know, how do what people were interpreting that differently? Do they, is 501 okay? What about the West Coast and the East Coast? What do we do? So automating that one proposal compliance check has made a very important improvement for the whole agency and it's brought the agency together to a shared common understanding of what that meant. It's so simple, right? You think five o'clock is five o'clock. We can say five o'clock Eastern or as you said Pacific, but people definitely interpret it differently. And to get people together around a table to go, okay, do we all agree with this? Yes. Automated move on. That's a huge win for, for simple but huge. At the same time then you also have these groups can help with Agile, and, and uh, every CIO I talk to are at least dipping their toes in Agile or DevOps, depending on what you want to call it today. Talk a little bit about what National Science Foundation is doing around Agile and or DevOps. So those, in my mind, those two, two things are uh, similar but not exactly the same. So with respect to Agile, what I think that is is when you have you have a significant amount of customer engagement working with the developers, turning out products at a relatively good clip small products at a relatively good clip. So we adopted that initially for modernization efforts. But last year we began, or we maybe two years ago, we began doing that for what would be called the existing systems as well. Some people would call those legacy, but we could have talk hours about that word. So I think that for the existing systems that had been developed in a waterfall approach, which means 
take a year, take a half a million dollars, and develop something. So Agile, you take small bits of money, small bits of time, and you develop little bits. Well, we have moved our legacy systems development process into Agile as well. The reason that's important is because what we're doing as we modernize is we pull a component away, a piece away from the older systems, and we replace it with a new system. But you can't do that easily unless they're both on the same kind of development timeline. Um, and so we've, we've embraced Agile across the board. Again, I, I talked to the former CIO at the Patent Trademark Office who has since left, and I've talked to several other CIOs, and same thing. They've really embraced it. They're saying this is our way to deal with legacy or existing systems. I'll start using that word maybe a little bit now, too. Uh, have you had to do some training? Have you had to hire specific people to come in, whether contractors or feds who have had this experience, or how have you kind of evolved? When we first decided to go down this road, we took the entire development workforce and the federal workforce and sent them off to training together. So that was a great launching uh, place. Of course, everyone didn't use it right away, but everyone understood the vocabulary and what was happening. We brought in expertise who had experience from vendor community, and they were also very excited because we were so excited. So it was a nice marriage. Uh, and I do believe that that allowed us to push the envelope on Agile in a way that other agencies were not able to. Also, NSF, to be perfectly honest, is a small agency. We can get things done, and it's really very, very satisfying to work here. That's another difference between organizations or CIOs you might be talking to who have enormous uh, scope, uh, and they're less likely to be able to be Agile, move quickly. And I think, you know, be able to send your entire staff to training, very few CIOs, if they have hundreds of people, would not be able to do that. So definitely a big plus of working at a smaller agency. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the other, the third piece of your effort, the innovation side, maybe jump into cybersecurity a little bit. But first, let's take a quick break. My guest is Dorothy Aronson, the National Science Foundation's Chief Information Officer. I'm your host, Jason Miller, and you're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com, 1500 a.m. Welcome back. You're listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm your host, Jason Miller. My guest is Dorothy Aronson, the National Science Foundation's Chief Information Officer. Dorothy, before break, we start talking about you, some of your other priorities, if you will, the three objectives you have for 2018, improve governance, engage the IT workforce more broadly. The third one is stimulate innovation. Let's talk a little bit about that. Innovation is a word I hear time and again throughout the government. You also mentioned the potential work with the CIO Council around artificial intelligence. That's fascinating, too. Maybe let's start there. When we began thinking about innovation and how it could be in integrated better into our day-to-day -day operations, we pulled together a series of what's called use cases, which are situations where artificial intelligence could be a benefit to us. And uh, we've sliced and diced those situations several ways and come up with a couple that seem like they could benefit not only NSF, but maybe if we could pull these things together into maybe utilities, other agencies could benefit from them too. And the first one was using artificial intelligence to help identify what we would call conflicts of interest. And so that's where a particular person at NSF submits a proposal and then that proposal is going to be reviewed by many other people. And those other people have, we have to make sure those other people don't have a relationship 
that would an unfair relationship with the person who's created the proposal. And so that's called a conflict of interest. And right now, this work is uh, laborious. When people are putting together panels, they have to do close research about the proposals and figure out who's not involved. And often the communities of people that are experts in these areas are not large, so it becomes very difficult to avoid conflicts. At any rate, it seems like a computer could do this pretty easily, not only looking at the existing information we have, like the proposals and who's worked here before and what their relationships are, but also maybe looking out onto the internet to see what universities this person has, people have been associated with in the past and whatnot. Um, so if we could design a way of doing that quickly, then we could save people a lot of time and energy here and possibly even elsewhere. So that would be an example that we would like to try to resolve. Fascinating conversation yesterday on this. I was around the table with many people who were talking about it, and they each knew of various efforts to do automate this. And so one of the things we decided to do right away was sort of create a neural network, a network of people who are already working to solve this problem, who could put together the requirements for the solution and possibly even merge their efforts together into a single solution and see if we could do this for uh, little or no money. That is why you bring these people together, because all of a sudden, oh, you're doing that too? Let's work together. Exactly. Uh, is there a timetable yet? Have you said, let's start a pilot, let's see if we can make this happen, or is, are you really just at the really beginning stages? We're really early in the stages right now. One of the things that's important is each of them has something that's a little further along than the central notion. One of the things we want to do as we're looking at this particular example is to also create a process around how we're doing it. So if we can figure out a good way to share the information that of uh, the network information, uh, if we can find a way of finding other ideas like this particular one that are so important and so frustrating for people that they're all inventing solutions, then uh, we would be able to leverage the, everyone's individual effort into something that's a combined effort. I imagine that artificial intelligence, machine learning, process automation, whatever we're going to call it, bots, could play a huge role in the grant side of the house, too. I mean, this is part of that grant, what you described, the grant side, but I imagine there's a lot of opportunity there. Have you started to go down that path to see where some other opportunities exist, whether, again, AI, machine learning, robotic automation, or what? So I think you might be alluding to the grants, the work that the researchers are doing outside of of this organization? It can be that, or it can be just your reviewing of the grant applications that come in and awarding of grants. A lot of that is very arduous, very kind of the same old, same old all the time. Yes, you're right on. So some of the other ways we could use AI in that process would be, say, have we received this exact proposal before? <laughs> so, you know, right now people have to, don't know for sure. They may suspect that they've read it before and they're not sure. So there's there's many, many, what I call, again, use cases that would that could simplify the work of the program officers here. Talk a little bit also about other ways you guys or be, try to be more innovative. Digital services is often talked in the same vein. How are you kind of trying to take what's happening within the, the private sector world? We talked Agile, for instance, and apply those kind of digital services, customer services, to the NSF's uh, operational side. So we've been using the 18F organization to help us launch a new NSF website. And we've been happy with the work we've seen so far. They use agile technologies, so it's a thoroughly new way of working for us. And so we look forward to seeing the outcome of that. It's an experiment. We're more or less just sampling different 
offerings at this point. All right, something to maybe to follow up with you in the future. Uh, the other big issue I want to bring up was cybersecurity. You can never have a conversation with the CIO without cybersecurity coming up. The Continuous Diagnostics and Mitigation Program, NSF, is part of one of the groups there, too. Just give us an update. What are you doing around cybersecurity? And let's start with the CDM program. One of our members of the DIS organization, the, the one I just left, was involved in the review of proposals for CDM. And so we were very early in jumping in on that initiative, and we were delighted that we would have support, central support, and someone telling us, prescribing an approach that would be uh, useful. We also liked the TIC, the combined access to the internet for the agency. So we tend to really like when someone supplements our knowledge with expertise that we can rely upon. And so we're in phase two, I think, of the CDM. We've adopted Einstein. And we also supplement where we find that we have other needs that are not covered by CDM, we supplement those ourselves. As far as CDM goes, the agency dashboards have been up or they're close to being up. Have you started to use your dashboard internally yet? Have you started to look at some of the data coming from the dashboard to help make decisions or help say, oh, that could be a threat or that could be a vulnerability? Has that kind of risen yet to you guys? I know that we're gathering a lot of data into some of the CDM tools in order to create the dashboards and to see how we're doing. I haven't seen any of the results of that yet. All right, so something, again, maybe coming down the pike. I know every agency is at a different space. We're almost out of time. This has been a fascinating conversation. Before I let you go, let's talk a little bit about vendors. I know a lot of vendors do listen to my program, so uh, what's your message to them? How do you like them to work with your office? I was a, a vendor, and I have tremendous respect for uh, contract support staff. And to me, though, the people that come from the vendor community are part are not an add-on to the federal workforce, but they're an integrated part of our workforce. And with that in mind, I think it's very important for them to always be able to come to us well-informed about what we do and also to be very open about working with each other. We have more than one vendor here, certainly, as I guess most people do, and I expect that I will not be able to tell the difference between one from one vendor to the, the other. That is my absolute expectation out of the gate. And I relish the ideas that come from the vendor community. Uh, I typically leverage only those that come from people that are already on our contract. And I tend not to, I personally tend not to get as involved in the procurement process as others. But I do get a lot of email and calls, and I tend not to reply to those directly. I, I will sometimes forward that on to others in my organization who have special knowledge. If something looks like it might make sense uh, for a network, I would send it to our networking uh, uh, people. But from my perspective, I don't tend to get too deeply involved in that. All right. Well, very good advice. Uh, hopefully, vendors will not uh, inundate you with email. This has been a fascinating conversation, unfortunately, though we are out of time for today. So let me thank my guest, Dorothy Aronson, the National Science Foundation's Chief Information Officer. Thank you so much for taking the time today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Jason. You've been listening to Ask the CIO on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I've been your host, Jason Miller. You've been listening to Ask the Chief Information Officer on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. Subscribe to this show on Podcast One or iTunes.